Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, July 22nd, 2013. This is podcast number 332, and my name is Ben Stone. I have a couple of brief announcements this morning, and stick with me through these because I think you're going to find this kind of important. Uh, If you've ever wanted a Bad Quaker t-shirt or a Bad Quaker sticker, we have a brand new design that's uh, been done by one of our listeners, and it's uh, it's really cool looking. I think it's really cool. The um, uh, the picture it, it's a, a drawn picture, and it um, uh, depicts a very uh, uh, slender me, which I appreciate the uh, the artist slimming me down a little bit. Hopefully, I can actually get back in shape a little and uh, and make that re- more realistic. But uh, but the Bad Quaker t-shirts and stickers are available. If you go to badquaker.com and you look across the, the header there across the front and you'll see the uh, the button to hit, that'll take you to a page that leads you to a page. It's The, uh, the t-shirts and stickers are actually being uh, marketed for us by uh, our friends over at Survival Gear Bags. Kelly um, has done a lot of work and set this all up, and he's taking care of all the marketing in for us. And the whole BadQuaker.com crew appreciates Kelly and all the work that the folks over there at uh, at Survival Gear Bags have done for us. And, you know, Kelly's been a good friend for a long time, and uh, and he's just a really great guy. Any business that we can send over to Kelly is uh, is always good. But if you can get uh, Bad Quaker t-shirts and stickers uh, out of the deal as well, then everybody everybody does well. The other thing is that I'm now doing a, a low bandwidth a low bandwidth a low bandwidth version of every podcast, and we may switch over and do all the podcast in low band only. We're uh, open for suggestions on that. Um, I've been playing around with it now for a month and a half or so. We've had several suggestions from listeners to go in that direction. So uh, if you have the time to listen to the to the podcast in both low bandwidth and in uh, full bandwidth, um, any feedback that you can give, you can just go right there to badquaker.com and put it in the uh, show note in the uh, below the show notes in the comments section about whether or not you uh, you feel that the low bandwidth version is still you know acceptable or if it's better to go that way entirely or if both versions uh, posted are good or whatever we're also considering making a whole separate um, website that's specifically more friendly to uh, mobile devices uh, you know cell phones and that kind of thing so any input that you want to put there at badquaker.com below the show notes just feel free to do that now the other thing is you're going to start hearing commercials that we're playing for the Freedom Fiends about these secure telephones. And um, this is a really, really cool thing that one of the listeners has come up with. And uh, and I really appreciate it. I've got one here. I've got it, my hands on it. 
Um, the, the Freedom Fiends have been looking at them, and they're just a really, really cool phone. And what you can do with it, you have to have Internet access. You have to have a, a local Wi-Fi that you can get to the Internet with. But once you, once you get on the Internet with this cell phone, then you have a military-grade encryption in your uh, talking and in your uh, text messages. Now, it's not available to, uh, the, not everybody can call these phones, and these phones can't call to everybody. You can only call and text to somebody who has one of these phones. Now, they're, uh, I believe there's something like $1,000 for a pair, okay? But that's, five, that's, about, that's a year, and that's about $500 each uh, uh, per, per year, for for each phone and if you do the math on that that makes it about the price of a regular cell phone so it's really even though you have to cough up the entire amount you know right from the beginning and you and you you have to buy two to make them useful because one by itself doesn't do you much good you got nobody to call but um other than people on the network and you can call anyone on the network on this secure network but you don't know who they are, and they don't know who you are, so you can't actually call them in reality. Okay, so I don't know if I explained that clearly or not, or if I did it justice, but it's a really cool phone that uh, that, that you can get uh, two of them each. Or if you get four, or if you get six, or if you get 18, uh, you can all call each other on those. And, and it's all, like I said, military-grade uh, encryption. So it, it can't be tapped into and listened to period. Okay. So, uh, so that's my announcements for today. I want to get through that, um, and get to the topic. And I, and I think it's maybe one of the more important podcasts that I'm going to do. And, uh, I, I think this is going to be, uh, remembered if, if any of my podcasts are remembered, I think this one will be the title today is the reason for our hope. And I wanted to do this podcast today because I've seen quite a few, um, you know, real liberty warriors that are facing, uh, I don't want to call it burnout because that sounds too simplified, but, you know, after a while, the battle kind of gets tough. There's a, uh, there's a scripture in the Bible that talks about uh, some of the warriors that fought for King David, and in one of them, it, it says that he fought until his hand cleaved, I believe that's the word it uses, his hand, uh, he couldn't, his hand cramped up and he couldn't let go of the sword. He had fought such a long and hard battle and he just kept, you know, swinging the sword and swinging the sword and, and the battle just kept going and kept going and his arm cramped up to the point where he couldn't let go of his sword and he fought on to victory. And, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes you feel that way. Sometimes you feel like the battle's just going to go on forever, and you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. You just, uh, you know, uh, and this is where defeat starts to come into your mind. And it, it it just seems like it'd be easier just to lay down and die, or, you know, in a metaphorical sense, not in an actual sense. But sometimes it feels like it would just be better to just disappear out of the movement and just take a break and just step away or or step out of it altogether, let somebody else do the fighting. Sometimes it just, the burden is too much. And when I was a kid, I heard the, the words of Jim Morrison, and, uh, and I'm going to quote him here. Jim said, um, breakfast where the news is read, television, children fed, unborn living, 
living, dead. Bullet strikes the helmet's head, and it's all over. For the unknown soldier, it's all over. For the unknown soldier, the war is over for the unknown soldier. Now, this is very similar to something that a generation prior to that, a guy named Douglas MacArthur said. He was quoting uh, Plato near the end, near after, or right after the end, I believe, of World War II. And uh, MacArthur said, only the dead have seen the end of war. In other words, what Morrison is saying here and what MacArthur is saying maybe, maybe more directly is that humans cannot live peacefully. Humans constantly make war. War is a natural state for humans. It's always been and will always be. And the only way to escape war is death. As with most things, Douglas MacArthur didn't know what he was talking about. You see, Plato never said that. Plato never said anything like that, as far as we can tell. That was made up in MacArthur's twisted mind. War is not the natural state of human beings. And humans have seen the end of war, and will see the end of war again. And if I could say something to Douglas MacArthur about that, I would say to him, just because you haven't seen it done, doesn't mean it can't be done. There were millions and millions and millions of people who lived their whole life and never saw a man take to wing and fly. But now he can do it. There were millions and millions and millions of people who lived and died and never thought it possible that human beings could light up the night and make it as bright as day. And now, with a flip of a switch, we can do that. You see, just because you haven't seen it done doesn't mean it can't be done. Now, I've got something to read here, and it's in reference to the title of today's show. So then, what is the reason of our hope? The heart grows weary of battle when victory is not within sight. But when the mind is anchored to reason and the overwhelming facts require faith in victory, the battle seems short and the hope of victory provides the strength to fight on, no matter the current circumstances. So then, what is the reason for our hope? Once upon a time, a man named Shimon, he was also called Petros, he said, uh, always be prepared to answer anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. He said, do this with gentleness and respect. Now, not long after Shimon taught this gentle confidence, he was tortured to death by the government. Shimon is Aramaic for the word rock, and Petros, he was also known as Petros, Petros is Greek for rock. Um, it's generally believed that Shimon was murdered by the Emperor Nero on or about the 13th of October, A.D. 64. He was very likely used as a human sacrifice in recognition of the divinity of Nero on Nero's uh, 10th anniversary as Emperor of Rome. Shimon, or Petros, 
is usually called Peter these days. Uh, sometimes he's called Simon Peter, so or uh, the so-called Saint Peter. I don't use titles like Saint and whatever, but but uh, some people refer to him as Saint Peter. Um, he was the guy that Yeshua, that's the guy we call Jesus, but his actual name was Yeshua. Um, that's the guy that Jesus rebuked when uh, uh, when the soldier was attempting to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter's the guy that jumped out and whacked off the soldier's ear with a sword, and Jesus rebuked Peter for that and uh, and said, "You can't you can't fight government like that. That's not the way to do this." Um, and then later that day, Jesus was tortured to death by the same government that would later murder Peter. Um, and they murdered they murdered Peter by the same method that they murdered Jesus. They tortured him to death and specifically crucified him. So, uh, so just before his death, Jesus rebuked Peter for taking up arms against the government. And just before Peter's death, Peter encouraged his followers to remain gentle and confident. You see, both men knew that victory was a guaranteed outcome. There was no doubt in either mind. It's almost never easy to be gentle and respectful to those who support a system based on robbery, extortion, and murder. But it's our job. However, it's not our job to be martyred for the glory of the state. And it's not our job to sit by idly while others are martyred. There's stuff we can do. But now... For today, let's stick with uh, the reason for the hope that's in us. How do we know we're going to win? How do we know it's going to go our way? How do we know that it's not just going to be endless cycles of the state until the state eventually crushes humanity? How do we know we're going to win? Well, here's some facts. It is the principal function of every known organism to stay alive. It is the second function of every known organism to reproduce. Some parent organisms will sacrifice their life so that their offspring can survive. Now, I would propose today that humans birthed government, not the other way around. Some humans will even sacrifice their lives for government. But folks government will not sacrifice its existence for humans. Government will take humans all the way to the grave and smile the whole way. But it is the primary function of government to stay alive. And it's the secondary function of government to spread and reproduce. Now here's some additional facts. There's an economic principle that when there's a, a scarce resources, competition results. And when you have stark competition, the more adapted defeat the less adapted. That's to say the strong survive and the weak die off. Now, governments survive by three methods. One, by force and intimidation, they consume wealth produced by some human beings. Two, by government employment and welfare dependency, they redistribute some of that stolen wealth to appease some humans. Now, for example, uh, government employment, corporate welfare, 
and individual welfare, these are all forms of dependency. We don't normally think of government employment as dependency, but it is. Every cop, every senator, every soldier, every bureaucrat, every pencil pusher and paper shuffler in government is dependent upon government. And every welfare recipient, whether they be uh, a, a, a person living in the slums or a person living out in the country in a trailer court, or whether they be the head of General Electric or the head of Monsanto, it's still welfare. And they are still 100% dependent upon this monster. And three, by constantly spreading, or depending on a host government that spreads, additional wealth-producing humans are used to feed the ever-increasing number of wealth-consuming humans. Now let me explain this one a little bit. You see, there are governments that are constantly spreading, like the U.S. government. It's constantly attempting to spread its influence out and gain more and more wealth from other places that it doesn't currently occupy. But there are other governments that don't do that. Let's take, for example, the Swiss government or several other governments that seem relatively benign. But the the tricky part is, you see, even those governments depend on governments like the U.S., you see, uh, you think about some of the different European governments that, um, that would just be tools of the Soviet Union today if it weren't for the U.S. government. And, and not that that's good or bad. The, the Soviet government was just as bad, if not worse, than the U.S. government. In ways, it wasn't as bad. In other ways, it was worse. But one way or the other, even the most benign government in some way depends upon these big consuming governments like the U.S. And the U.S. government depends upon constantly spreading and constantly consuming more and more and more from new places that it doesn't really, uh, that it doesn't, you don't, that are not within its borders. So some people would say, well, the U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy needs to change and the U.S. foreign policy needs to be more drawn back and worry about your own borders and worry about what's going on within the government, within the, the boundaries of the U.S. But you see, the U.S. government cannot survive by doing that because it's already consumed so much of the U.S. economy that it can't support itself within its own borders. And for it to exist, it must constantly be invading other countries and, and consuming the wealth of other countries. It no longer has a base of support within its own boundaries that will support this Leviathan. Now further, I'd like to propose that this process, uh, this three-part uh, government survival process that I just talked about, I want to propose that this process produces a, ser- produces a series of conundrums for those who believe that government will continue into perpetuity. You see, government has to end at some point, and I'm going to show you why. Between the wealth that government redistributes to the dependent class and the wealth that it destroys in the process, there's always an overall net loss of wealth. It doesn't matter how much the government takes in. It doesn't matter how much the government gives out. The government will always be a net loser. It will always destroy a large quantity of wealth. 
Now, temporary surges aside, sure, sometimes there can be a little bit more. Sometimes there can be some leftovers. Sometimes it, government doesn't quite consume as much as it does in other times. And sometimes there's temporary uh, bubbles of prosperity. But overall, it works out that government produces a net loss of wealth. Government uses up all of its available resources, and it always needs more. This usually results in government uh, using credit to continue appeasing the dependent class. It, it can't steal enough from, uh, from, the, from the wealth producers. It can't steal enough to keep the Leviathan going. And eventually, uh, it'll continue to steal. But eventually, it has to start stealing from the future. It has to start uh, relying on credit. And, and one way to think of this process, um, it's, it's kind of like if you were playing, if you were continuously playing a slot machine, and a slot machine is designed to pay out 90% of what it takes in. So if you just sit there continuously and play the same slot machine that's giving a 90% payout, then you're going to continually win sometimes, but you're always going to lose 10% of what you're putting in. It's always going to consume 10% into the slot machine that it won't give back. And it doesn't matter if you hit the occasional jackpot. If you stay on that machine and play it long enough, it will always win 10% of what you're putting in, and you will always never gain that. You will never gain that money back. The longer you play it, the more guaranteed it is of that, of that process. And so government is very much like that. It's literally borrowing money to continue a process that is a guaranteed loss. So it's constantly stealing from everybody it can in the present day. And when it can't steal any more from the people that, it's, that it depends upon, then it begins stealing from future people. And that's what government does. This assures that government is always operating on a net loss and must depend on an increasing number of future wealth producers. But wealth producers tend to reproduce at an increasingly slower and slower rate. And you can look at Europe and you can look at the U.S. and there's all kinds of different reasons for this. But it still happens. The biggest wealth producers tend to produce less and less offspring. And it's very similar to what you see in a zoo where animals that normally in the wild reproduce at a very high rate and you stick them in a zoo and all of a sudden their reproductive capabilities either cease completely or are dramatically affected. But the odd thing is where, where you have dependent classes, the dependent classes tend to reproduce at increasing rates. It's not always the case, but it's often the case. So you literally have the most productive wealth producers reproducing less and the most dependent wealth eaters reproducing more. And this is just one more factor that drives government towards destruction. Another problem is that the productive humans, productive people, people who are actually producing wealth that the government is eating, those, that productive human population within government control will always tend to seek to become part of the dependent class. I mean, why wouldn't they? If you're constantly producing wealth and the government is constantly taking it, 
And yet, all you have to do is fill out some forms and you can get that wealth back. You can be a part of those people who consume the wealth instead of producing it. Or if all you have to do is apply for a job in the government and your workload is lessened, you don't have to think, you don't have to work hard, you just collect money, you just obey. And that's a lot easier than being out there competing in a dog-eat-dog world where you're forced to to really produce if you want to make it. It's easier just to, to have a spongy government job that you can't be fired from. So why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you, if you're part of the productive class, if you're within government control, and you're part of that government and you're part of that productive class and you watch government taking 60 70 80% of your wealth constantly day after day week after week paycheck after paycheck month after month why wouldn't you go and be a part of the dependent class have a lighter workload or no workload at all seems logical so all these things together mean that government tends to create more and more dependent class and it needs new people to become the wealth producers. What this means is that government will constantly seek new territories and new humans to harvest wealth from as their old territories are less and less productive and more and more dependent. At some point, the demand for new territories overwhelms the supply of unharvested productive humans as governments fill the earth. Territory, always a limited commodity, becomes a stark shortage, and the survival of the fittest becomes a factor in competing governments. Now this is the stage we're at today. Governments have practically taken control of every geographical region of the earth. There are, all, there are almost no people left on earth that are not either dependent upon the government or feeding the government with their labor as far as geographically. But they have not, and they will not, and they cannot control 100% of the human population. Large portions of the population of Europe and North America and Australia and a huge swath of the population of Asia are either government-dependent or the bulk of their production feeds government. But this is only half the story, folks. And this is where our hope lies. Where does our hope lie? Well, I'm going to tell you. Our hope lies outside of the reach of government. When I get back from this break, I'm going to talk about the underground economy, the shadow economy. I'm going to talk about gray markets. And I'm going to talk about the power of black markets. Stick with me, I'll be right back. Badquaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have a helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% uptime guarantee. And they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to badquaker.com first. Click the button for HostGator. And thank you for supporting badquaker.com. Need to talk to people in a secure manner? Liberty Private Network sells phones that will work over any good internet connection and give you military-grade encryption for calls that cannot be tapped. 
Great for lawyers and clients, business people with trade secrets, or just ordinary folk who don't want their love talk spied on by some scumbag from the central scrutinizer. Call 516-TLK-SAFE on your non-secure phone and tell them the Freedom Fiends sent you. That's 516-TLK-SAFE. Folks, there's only a finite supply of gold and silver in the world. However, politicians can print paper on a whim forever and ever. Hedge yourself against inflation and a volatile stock market by purchasing gold and silver bullion from Amagai Metals. As inflation gets worse, it will become more difficult to buy gold and silver. So secure your financial freedom today by visiting amagaimetals.com. That's A-M-A-G-I-M-E-T-A-L-S dot com. Or you can give them a call at 1-800-882-8496. That's 1-800-882-8496, where financial freedom is yours. And be sure and tell them badquaker.com sent you. So where does our hope lie? Our hope lies outside of the reach of government. I promised before the break that I'd talk about the underground economy or the so-called shadow economy, gray markets and black markets. And I want to distinguish the difference here between a gray market and a black market. This is pretty much all could be considered the underground economy or the shadow economy. But there's a big difference between gray markets and black markets. Black markets are things that are explicitly illegal, things like drugs, prostitution, illegal gambling, illegal alcohol, uh, uh, the the transportation sale of contraband that's specifically outlawed, or, um, you know, uh, let's say tobacco products that are sold without taxation or without, uh, you know, the proper paperwork being filed and this kind of thing. So all that kind of stuff that is explicitly illegal is the black market. Uh, gray markets, on the other hand, are much wider, uh, include a lot more stuff and a lot less risk. And sometimes the products, you know, oftentimes products on a black market, not always, but oftentimes they're more expensive because uh, there's a certain risk factor. But that's not always the case. Sometimes products on the black market are far cheaper than products on the uh, above ground market. But in the gray market, they're Products are often cheaper than they are in the uh, uh, in the above ground market, and for good reason. So now, uh, keep in mind, and and just if you think of just the black markets, the the explicitly illegal markets, there are uh, estimated to be almost two billion people worldwide that make their living off of the black market. Again, that's not the gray market. That's explicitly illegal activities. Almost 2 billion people. Now, folks, there's only about 7 billion people on earth. And you think about that. Now, outside of illegal markets, um, the uh, what we might call the unreported economy or the unrecorded economy, in the U.S. alone, Unreported income is estimated to be about $2 trillion. $2 trillion in America alone that is not taxed, that is happening under the government radar, that the government can't see. Because if it can see it, it'll tax it. It'll go after the people that are doing it. And it'll, it'll force them to come back into the system. But the U.S. government and all of its tentacles 
fail to grab that part of the economy that equals about $2 trillion a year in the U.S. alone. I'm going to give a couple of examples of this. Uh, now, I've seen this personally. These are things that I've seen personally, each, each of these examples that, I've, that I'm going to give. Uh, a very small, what seems like a very small thing. I drive around, uh, my wife and I drive around in our, 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 in our RV, and we stop in a lot of campgrounds. And uh, we go into a campground, and, and you could get the feel right away if it's a mom-and-pop type, uh, you know, privately owned campground, and you get the feel immediately of how the place is run. And very often what you'll find with these privately owned campgrounds is that if you walk in and, and you look the way I look, which if you're not sure, go over to badquaker.com and take a look at me and you'll see what I'm talking about. You look the way I look, and they know that you're okay in the, you know, you're not a government plant. You're not there from the IRS checking them out. So I walk in, and I say, like, you know, one day, two days, whatever, we're going to stay in that particular campground. And they say, and how would you like to pay for that today? They usually ask that before they fill out any paperwork. And I say, I'd just like to pay for it in cash. And the next key question comes along, did you need a receipt for that? And if I say no then the odd thing is very often, if not almost all the time with these mom-and-pop-owned campgrounds, they use a different set of books or they don't write it down at all and they just take the money and no one knows. I stay, my wife stays, our little dog stays, they take the money and no one knows. And that is the unreported economy that is the underground economy. That is the gray market. Technically, it's illegal. But if, uh, if a cop walks up, he, he knows nothing. He doesn't see a thing. Uh, my wife and I used to be restaurant managers for a major uh, chain, for a major restaurant chain. And we were competing managers, actually. And, and let me just tell you, uh, at all opportunities, avoid competing with my wife. She's brutal. But that's beside the point. But anyway, both my wife and I uh, ran separate um, restaurants for quite some time. And uh, something that we observed in the restaurant industry that was very common, and that is that, uh, let's say, your, your whole restaurant crew has is, is had a very, very busy Friday night or Saturday night or whatever, and they've really done well, and you really want to just give them that extra little attaboy. And so you say, okay, you know, after the crew, after the shift is over, I'm buying dinner for the crew. Or if it's according to what kind of restaurant it is, you might buy the crew drinks or you might buy them. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to tell what, you, what you're going to do. But now you're not the only restaurant in town that just went through that. And you're not the only restaurant in town that wants to congratulate their crew. So restaurant managers often talk to each other. Um, you know, if they don't, they should. Because, uh, because you learn a lot by talking to other restaurant managers. And, um, and if you do it for a while, you kind of develop a network of managers within the town that you're in, and each, everybody knows each other. And so, you know, you want to reward your crew for doing a great job. So you call up the guy over at the, uh, you know, at the, at the uh, seafood place. And, and in my case, I was managing a, re a pizza restaurant. So I call up the guy at the seafood place, and I'm like, hey, 
you know, uh, you guys want to work out some kind of trade, I'll provide you guys with uh, pizza for your crew and you provide us with, uh, you know, a bunch of shrimp dinners or something, maybe some lobster dinners or whatever. And you work out a deal like that. And uh, the odd thing is it only costs each restaurant the food cost, which is dramatically lower than the uh, actual, you know, than the, than the menu price. And so without any paperwork being done whatsoever, the pizza restaurant supplies dinner to the, uh, to the seafood uh, restaurant. And the seafood restaurant provides dinner to the pizza restaurant. And everybody gets fed, and it's all off the books, and it only costs what the raw food costs are. You see, things like that happen pretty frequently, and you might think, well, that's kind of a stretch to be a gray market, but really it's not, especially when you take it a step further and you say you have really, really faithful employees, and so you work out a deal with them. You know, I'd like to lower my food, my, my labor cost because labor often – in a restaurant, labor is uh, often your major cost, if not your second to major cost. And you're, as a restaurant manager, you're constantly trying to figure out a way to lower your labor costs. So one of the things you can do is make arrangements with key employees. And so either they work off the books, under the table, or they work for uh, food arrangements. So you, you know, you buy them dinner or you give, uh, or you swap off with other restaurants. And so they have a variety of dinners to choose from and they do that. And it's cheaper for them. They see now they're not paying taxes and all the other expenses that go with, um, with getting a paycheck. Sure. You, you, they still get some hours and they still get a paycheck and the government still takes some money from them. But if you work it out right, you can do this over a, over the course of a city. You know, you can work out deals with a shoe store. You can work out deals with a local radio station for you know for free ads for your restaurant, uh, and for and the radio station can work out a deals for a free advertisement on your pizza boxes or however you want to do it. And all this stuff happens every day in every city. It happens constantly. And it's there, and the government doesn't even see it. It's right under the government's nose, and they don't have any idea that it's happening. And this goes into other markets as well. I worked years and years in construction, and I know that in construction, similar things take place. You talk to a lumber mill, and you arrange a deal where you're going to build a new shed for the, for the lumber mill, and out of the deal, you get you know, a certain number of uh, pallets of lumber. And it's all off the books. And the, and the lumber company doesn't have to pay all the taxation that goes with that. And maybe the inspectors are not called to look at the building. And, you know, the taxes are not paid to get all the special uh, exceptions taken care of to get the building fixed. He knows it's going to be a good building because you're a respected contractor. And deals like this happen all the time, even in the most regulated countries. During the Soviet era of Russia, in the 1980s, gov Soviet government officials admitted that the underground economy in the USSR was roughly 20% of the gross national product of the USSR. Now, let, let me just restate that. Government officials in the country that, that wanted to keep every flaw a secret, they didn't want to admit that, the, that, that, that they did anything wrong. The Soviet Union wanted to always 
project this appearance to the world that their system was perfect and worked without flaw. And yet in the 1980s, they admitted that 20% of everything that the nation produced was in the underground economy. 20% was untouchable to government. The most repressive governments that have ever existed could not control the underground economy. This is the same in, uh, in the former East Germany, where some of, the, some of the tightest government regulations that have ever existed were in East Germany, where every person, every neighbor was watching constantly for the opportunity to turn in their neighbor so that they could, uh, you know, so that they could live and, thr- and thrive and survive because that's the way the, the East German uh, society worked. People turned in each other constantly. And even in that, the underground economy thrived. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, uh, made a report, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to this report because it's kind of eye-opening if you read it. But the IMF report in 2002 said the following, and I'm going to read from it. It gave uh, three points, and I'm going to read these three points. One, a prospering shadow economy makes official statistics unreliable. Policies and programs that are framed on the basis of unreliable statistics may be inappropriate and self-defeating. Now think about that. The IMF is saying, look, um, the underground economy gives us false statistics. We make policies and laws and all these other things. Central planning is based on these false, unreliable statistics. And that creates a situation where the, the central planning that is attempted becomes self-defeating. Okay, now point two. The growth of the shadow economy can set off a destructive cycle. Transactions in the shadow economy escape taxation, thus keeping tax revenues lower than they otherwise would be if the tax base or tax uh, compliance is eroded Governments respond by raising tax rates, encouraging a further flight into the shadow economy that further worsens the budget constraints on the public sector. So think about this. This is what they're saying in their second point. So so people flee the above-ground economy, and they go into the shadow economy. And when they do that, it sets off this destructive cycle. So transactions in the shadow economy are not taxed. Government constantly wanting more and more taxation now doesn't get as much. So what do they do? They increase tax rates or they, or they increase the number of things that they put tax upon. Government is constantly looking for new things to tax and it's constantly trying to raise the tax rates on the stuff that it already taxes. And in doing that, it drives more and more people into the shadow economy, which starves the government even more causes the government to, government to react by doing what? Raising tax rates and seeking new ways to, to, uh, to tax things. So it's a cycle that constantly drives in the direction against government. And now here's the third point from this study. A growing shadow economy may provide strong incentives to attract domestic and foreign workers away from the official economy. Now really that's just a restating of the second point. But it's an important restating because it's saying, look, what this does is it literally drives the workers out of the economy. 
It drives the most productive people into the, the shadow markets. This is a cycle. It is a government-killing cycle. According to the IMF report, about half of the economy in developing nations is in the shadow economy. It quotes Nigeria in 2002. It says that 77% of the gross national product, I'm sorry, the gross domestic product in Nigeria in 2002 was in the shadow economy. 77%. And of course, this is an old study. This is an old, uh, the IMF report is from 2002, so that's why it's so old. But this has been increasing. They're, they're saying in the 2002 study that it's been increasing. And, uh, and newer studies show that it's increased all the way through the 2000s. Now, from the same study, it says that countries with relatively low tax rates, fewer laws, and fewer regulations, and a well-established rule of law tend to have smaller shadow economies. Well, duh. That's like saying uh, it tends to be wet in the middle of the ocean. But here's the thing of it. Smaller countries, small countries with uh, low tax rates and few laws and few regulations rarely stay in that condition or they become more and more a puppet of a big, com- a big uh, country like the U.S. And so a small, weak government eventually just becomes the puppet of a large, powerful government and then eventually it becomes you know, just an, another way to feed the big, powerful government. So then we think about it. What trend do we see in the world when it comes to government growth? Uh, are nation states shrinking, lowering their taxes, cutting their debt, and sticking to smaller budgets? Do we see that? Are, are nation states eliminating bureaucracy, cutting their troop numbers, mothballing their navies, and respecting their citizens? Do we see that? No, we see just the opposite of that on every front. We see, we see countries, we see um, nation states oppressing their people more and more, and we see them less able to, uh, to support the growing numbers of poor and the growing numbers of dependents within their boundaries. What we see is, na- is big nation states positioning themselves as tomorrow's superpowers, monopolizing natural resources and establishing control of key waterways while, abre- while oppressing their productive class more and more every day. That's what we actually see. We see these governments getting more and more aggressive and more aggressive with each other. The recent uh, leaks that, that prove what a lot of us have been saying for a long time about the NSA spying, this, uh, this doesn't go well with other nation states to find out that the U.S. has been watching their citizens and watching members of their government and recording all of their phone calls and recording all of their communications. People don't like that. But it's growing more and more. And as this stuff gets revealed, more and more countries, uh, more and more governments um, are, are being busted as doing the same thing. So what we see is exactly what the IMF predicted in that report 11 years ago. As the underground economy grows, governments grow desperate for funding and oppression increases as oppression increases, more and more people turn to the underground economy for survival. As this process repeats, governments appear less and less legitimate to anyone who's really paying attention. Okay, so we're paying attention. You and I see this. I know you see it, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. So we see this, so what are we supposed to do? 
Well, there's a lot to do, but one of the things that's our primary job, the most important thing we can do, is we stand on the high ground and we point the way to morality. We peacefully and respectfully stand on the moral high ground and shine the light of truth. As small governments become the puppets of large governments, and as the world gets divided into seven or five or three huge government superpowers, and as they fight over natural resources, and as they destroy their, ba- their tax bases, and as oppression increases around the world, governments themselves assure our ultimate victory. The nature of their God, the state, will be revealed to everyone because the nature of this beast is destruction and when the productive taxpayers vanish from the sight of government into the shadows of the underground governments will in desperation turn on their poorest dependents slaughtering them under one guise or another because it will no longer be able to feed them governments will be terrified by the hungry masses and governments will respond uh, with the only tool that they have They always have done this. When this dark time comes, some people have said that one-third of humanity will die by the hand of this beast. In that dark day, the inevitability of our victory will become the most obvious. When this beast shows his true face, when humanity beholds this creature in, in the hideousness of its full glory, In that dark moment, humanity will see the truth and reject their God, the state. This idol stands tall today. He's so tall. This colossus engulfs the world. But this colossus has feet of clay. And those clay feet can't support the idol's big golden head. By sheer physics, by economics, by sheer numbers, this this idol will fall. He will tumble and he'll break into pieces. I know this. Perhaps I see this clearly because on a quiet day on a river bank, I sat and watched the toil and the trouble of my fellow man. Perhaps I asked myself, what will the end look like? What will this take us to? How will this be in the future? Perhaps that's why I see this so clear. Perhaps I climbed onto the shoulders of other men who asked themselves this same question. And perhaps from that perch I could see a little further. Perhaps a still, small voice whispered to me while I napped under the apple tree in my backyard. And perhaps, perhaps I've just spent too much time feeding squirrels and talking to blue jays on warm summer mornings. No matter the origin, this is the reason for the hope that is within me. In my mind's eye, I have seen the end of war. I know it's there. Folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.